Last March, while I was in Malawi, I had the wonderful opportunity to tour the facilities of Farm Radio Trust, a Malawian organization that supports farmers and rural development through radio and other information and communication technologies. I spoke to three of their members, and we had a wide-ranging conversation about farming in Malawi, and more specifically about what Farm Radio does about climate change and about land tenure. First, I asked them to introduce themselves. My name is Clement Shema. I'm working as a radio programming specialist here at Farm Radio Trust. My name is Elube Kanyenda. I work with Farm Radio Trust as an agricultural innovation system specialist. My name is Moses Kaufa. I'm working for Farm Radio Trust as a project officer, but also responsible for uh, community mobilization. So I arrived in Malawi just a couple of days after Cyclone Ide hit Mozambique in the southern region of Malawi to devastating effect. I was in the central region, which was not affected by the cyclone, but certainly while I was there, I witnessed extreme weather, including truly frightening winds and a hailstorm that ravaged crops and trees. There's no question that Malawi sits on the front lines of the impact of global warming. As one of the poorest countries in the world, it can ill afford to tackle these issues, but it has little choice. Every day, the newspaper headlines while I was there pointed to some facet of climate change, from drought to flood to crop adaptation and on and on. Clearly for Malawians, climate change is not some frightening specter down the road, but a crisis cutting deeply into their lives each and every day. I started by asking about farm radio and how it is approaching climate change with farmers. Moses Kaufa. Um, basically, what we're trying to do is to make sure that farmers are able to understand climate information, weather forecasts, so that it helps them plan in advance uh, if at all there are any kinds of uh, dangers that are being foreseen and if there is any other kind of adjustments that they need to make to their uh, crops, livestock or livelihood. So we've been working with um, the University of Reading, which uh, came to train farmers on the participatory integrate, inter- integrated climate services for agriculture, which is, um, in short, it's called PIXA approach, which helps farmers understand uh, climate information, weather information, weather forecasts, and all the dangers that we might be, we might be able to, to foresee mm-hmm. so that in, uh, it helps them actually plan. How receptive are farmers to these initiatives? Um, basically, farmers now um, are seeing this as very relevant and important to their agricultural practices because, um, first of all, we trained them uh, on how they can understand climate information. And then um, they relate that to their uh, resource, resources that they have, um, the climate in their area, and then be able to make adjustments based on what they have been doing previously and what they need to do so that they, um, in the face of the effects of climate change, they still uh, have food security and other, other livelihood options that mm-hmm. can help them. Is it a dialogue in the sense that farmers are living climate change, so I would think that many of them would be able to speak back to government and organizations and say, yes, this is what we've observed on the ground empirically, this is what's happening with certain crops. So do our farmers listen to also, or are they being told how, how to manage it? Um, like I said, it's interactive. So it means farmers also have uh, an opportunity 
to express their their, their views mm -hmm. in terms of whatever is being uh, propagated or um, uh, uh, supported uh, in terms of whatever they they are doing. So. Basically, we are working closely with the, the agriculture extension staff, which is a department under the Minister of Agriculture. These are the people that are working closely with the community, with the farmers in the communities. So we have partnered with them. We have also partnered with the Department of Climate Change and Meteorological Services because we see that we cannot just push uh, information to the farmers, but we need to engage them in a, dis in a kind of a discuss discussion, mm -hmm. so that we hear where they feel that they will be they will be finding challenges in terms of um, uh, adopting the, the the technologies that we're propagating. Already through the Minister of Agriculture, they have been uh, uh, training farmers on some climate smart agricultural technologies. So we have linked this to, um, to, to the climate information and so on. So we, we, we are not actually pushing the information to them, mm -hmm. but we are discussing with them. And actually there is one thing that we, we, we emphasize is that we always just want to make sure that a farmer is making decisions while having all the information that yeah. they need. Yeah. So we are, the, the decisions is up to them. Whatever adjustments they want to make, it's up to them. Right. They can have all the information, but at the end, make no change, make no adjustment to their agricultural practices. It's up to them. Mm -hmm. But all that we want is to make sure that we have given them all the necessary information. Okay. So could you talk concretely about what some of these adaptations are? Is it changes in crops? Is it changing in, changes in farming methods? What, what concretely is going on? Yeah. Um, we're looking at... Uh, uh, Three, three categories of uh, decisions that farmers are supposed to make. They're making uh, decisions uh, regarding crops, mm -hmm. where we are looking at now the type of crops that, have, that they have to grow, the varieties that are rela relevant to the climate that they're expecting, and then the farming um, practices, technologies that they have to follow to make sure that they conserve uh, moisture, they conserve um, fertility, and so on. At the same time, we are also looking at uh, the, 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 animal, uh, the, the livestock options. On, on livestock uh, options, we are trying to emphasize that farmers should begin now to keep uh, animals that um, correspond to the uh, environment or the climate that they are living in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are also other kinds of um, um, information that is disseminated to farmers, that is shared with farmers, to make sure that they understand what kind of environment, what kind of climate is fit for a specific kind of crop or um, animal, uh, and then what kind of food it will need in the face of the uh, harsh effects of climate change and so on. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we're also looking at uh, life, livelihood options, where now we are looking at, um, in, the, in, the, in case uh, livestock farming has failed, with the effects that we might not we might expect of climate change, and in case uh, the crops have failed, what else could they do to to, to, to sustain their lives? So, what would you be know? some so, options? So, we are looking at the the village savings and loans. We are looking at small businesses mm -hmm. and a number of things. That so, moving away from farming. Yeah, uh, not not necessarily moving away, but supplementing ah. the the farming mm -hmm. itself, okay. so that in the face of a uh, challenges faced with the uh, crops or livestock, they should still have somewhere where they can rely on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are these kinds of uh, three categories of options that we, uh, we share, we discuss with the farmers. 
I was in Malawi in the lead-up to the elections, which have since come and gone, leaving Malawi in the grips of a political crisis with many raising serious concerns about the legitimacy of the outcome. But back in March, I was curious to hear about the role of party politics in addressing climate change and farmers' needs. Clement Shema. With the coming elections in Malawi, uh, we've seen a number of political parties, especially those that have uh, launched their manifestos, that they have said something about climate change. Um, However, uh, still, like it's been in the past, where we have seen that uh, parties have very good manifestos. They talk uh, some flowery things, promising, uh, but when it comes to implementation, it becomes a very big challenge. Mm-hmm. So you find out that every uh, election uh, year, it's like we're going in circles. Uh, we have very good uh, plans. We have very good uh, dreams. But uh, when it comes to implementation, it becomes a challenge. So, uh, yes, currently we have some flowery uh, uh, manifestos that are, seem to be uh, prioritizing or make climate change as one of the priorities, uh, particularly uh, looking at the effect it does it does have on agriculture development in Malawi. So all, so far the parties that have uh, produced their manifestos, launched their manifestos, they are saying something about uh, climate change, uh, but also how they intend to uh, 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 bring remedial measures or uh, to bring in resilience or uh, how to make uh, uh, farmers adapt mm-hmm. uh, to climate, to the effects of uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. But also I wanted to say uh, uh, from the past experiences, we've seen that uh, political parties have uh, resolved to work in uh, political styles where any development work that was done by a particular party that was in government then, a new party comes in, it doesn't want to do anything with what was being done uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, creating a name for themselves to say, okay, they did this, they did that. So they don't want to continue uh, with good things that the previous parties or government did uh, because they they feel like they'll be promoting the, uh, the, 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 the government. But I think time has come that even political parties in Malawi, when we have good plans, uh, we should also be able to build on the good uh, foundations that mm-hmm. others have laid so that we don't uh, work on our political styles or just working on projects, uh, uh, political term projects, where when five years is gone, then the projects mm-hmm. end. But we need to have uh, continuity. Land grabbing and issues of land tenure in general are at the core of many struggles across Africa and are having a very direct impact on people's livelihoods and survival. Malawi is not immune to this phenomenon, which takes many forms there. Moses Kaufa and Elubi Kanyenda. That one is a problem, particularly in the cities, and we've seen some of the even companies, uh, other institutions are going, business companies are going even to the villages to buy. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that forced government to try to bring in a change in terms of land uh, policy, uh, land act, because like uh, because most of the land was uh, in the hands of uh, uh, chiefs, or we, we call it customary land, mm-hmm. particularly those in peri-urban. Mm-hmm. In urban, usually it's a city or uh, malal housing or lands, mm-hmm. ministry of land that is in control. So whenever we want to buy that, you go through uh, the appropriate uh, uh, 
uh, ministries. But for customary, uh, customary land uh, where chiefs were in control, you know, people could just come from town or from other countries, they use Malawians, they would go there and then buy at a cheaper price, and then they buy a huge uh, piece of land, huge area of land. So that has been, that one has been a challenge, has been an increasing challenge uh, with, uh, like for instance, I'll give an example, just in the peri, in the west uh, side of Lilongwe, you find out there are a lot of uh, uh, industrial buildings that have been built there, or warehouses, and, uh, but there used to be a lot of houses there, people living there, but what happened? Uh, people could mm. just go buy land, and so long as the chief uh, consents to that, that's okay. Yeah. And, the, and then the, the ministry, has, about two weeks ago, they were also like more like encouraging the chief to say, don't just sell land to corporate organizations or maybe the industrious uh, companies that are coming in because, like, like you said, they can consent that. So with the new act, of, uh, the, the new, there's a new customary land act that is trying to minimize that mm. type of act, uh, those type of uh, transactions, yeah. yes. If I'm not wrong, <laughs> previous act, you, they could sell land wherever. But now they say, okay, all land become belongs to the government. If they want to utilize the land there, like if they if the government has plans for there, they will actually name to say this is a place for the government. Maybe they'll come and then they actually put reserved. You find a lot of places we have like reserved for government. But for the chiefs, they're supposed to sell the land based on the castle. They have a committee at the community level that they have to go through for them to actually make sure that that is actually done. But then we see that why the ministry came with that message from last week, from two or three weeks ago, is because others are still bypassing those community uh, acts to actually still purchase the land so long as the chief consents it. And they have what you call stamps to actually say, okay, yes, I've actually signed it off so it can be bought and be purchased. So it's still a problem because when someone is desperate... And it's exploitation to some sense because when someone is desperate and then someone just comes to you and land is really cheap, like it's really cheap for for them because they don't appreciate the value. So someone will just come to them and then they'll just, they are desperate, especially people like to go buy land to the customary land when it's actually during these, not now, now people have plenty, they'll have a lot of food, but then around January, February when the food, the crops they have not yet harvested, They'll go there and then make a, name, a, name a price. And then they do that and then someone is desperate. If I have land and I'm desperate and someone is offering me a million for maybe two acres of my mm. land, I would sell that because I think a million is a lot of money. But then the implications I have towards at the end, it's very bad. My children, my children's children, my grandchildren, my family, that means I've denied them of their share of that particular land. So mm. it becomes a problem with the now the youth that are growing up, they don't have much land left for them to actually convert. And 80% of the economy in this country depends on agriculture. We depend on farming. And of that, 80% is coming from the smallholder farmers mm-hmm. that are in the homes. So now this, the pieces of land are getting smaller and smaller. And then the flat areas, like the flat areas like Lilunga is one of those good area for like cultivation, is now flooding with a lot of industries. And then the, the, the other lands that are there are just like not so good for cultivation or farming, and that becomes a challenge. The, the issue of um, land grabbing, when you look at it from the traditional point of view, 
it doesn't have much effect because it's about, like you said, uh, an uncle, I mean, uh, claiming control over some land that, that belonged to somebody who has died and so on and so forth. We're talking about small portions of land. The coming in of the laws, uh, the, the Land Act, whatever, probably they were trying to protect uh, the land that from um, people who might just want to sell their land just to get money, just like you should, yeah. like she's saying. Yeah. But there are some other instances uh, where you find that there are companies, even the government itself, mm-hmm. is taking land away from farmers, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that is the same thing that is probably bringing fear in the, in the lower Shire, where we have, where the farmers are mostly affected by climate change. You know, when we're talking, when she, when she was saying farmers would not want, uh, uh, would not want to move away from the, uh, flood the, areas. From the flood areas, it's because they don't depend so very much on on rain-fed agriculture. You know, so it's like when the when the floods are, are, are going, when the when, when the water is going back to normal. It leaves moisture and yeah. they, they go back there. Yeah. To, to, actually, this is what is happening even right now. The floods are now are now gone, so they are going back to the same areas now to begin to grow mm-hmm. uh, sweet potatoes, whatever, mm-hmm. so on, so, so that they can still have food. Mm-hmm. Now they are afraid that if they move away from those land from those areas, they will find out now in the long run that the, that land belongs to somebody else, mm-hmm. or probably the government. You know, yeah. so they are trying to protect their land. Yeah. Um, we had a similar uh, scenario uh, in the previous government of the Malawi Congress Party before democracy came in. We had lots of land that belonged to the Press Farming Corporation in Kasungu. Uh, they were calling it Kasungu Flukua Tobacco Authority, kind of. Just yeah, press agriculture. Yeah, you know. So after when we came into uh, into democracy, chiefs distributed this land to to, to to different people who were doing very good agriculture. This time we find that whole area, the people were chased out of that, mm. yeah, of that land and they have now opened a, a camp, a military camp. So you wonder, where did these people go? Mm. You know, Are they doing, are they doing the, the, the farming that they used to do? Are they I mean, reaping what they they used to have previously, yeah. you know, from that land. It was after 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 like 15, 20 years, you know, that they were chased out of that land. It's the same thing that happened even in uh, in Kota Kota in Luangwa, where now this other company came with uh, an, uh, uh, an irrigation uh, kind of uh, intervention, sugarcane, yeah, like for smallholder farmers, and now they were taking land that was not being effectively used mm-hmm. by the farmers like dumbos and so on so they're saying we can utilize this land but then it will be you benefiting because now what they were doing is like they grow the, the sugar cane and then they were the, the portions that uh, were got from the from the farmers were kind of shares for them so it's like if they after the after harvesting of the, the, the sugar cane they make all the calculations, whatever the, uh, has been, whatever inputs were mm-hmm. uh, costed and so on, and then the rest is distributed to the farmers as their uh, shares mm-hmm. and so on, mm-hmm. you know. But then farmers were still afraid, much as they were benefiting, but there were still some who were saying, were threatening them to say, no, these people are just uh, kind of uh, painting you with this kind of stuff. Making so that promises. You, get, you know, mm-hmm. making, but then in the long run, you find that they will 
claim this land as yeah. theirs. Yeah. You know, so this, they began to fight back. So I know, let's stop this this project because we want to have our land back and mm-hmm. so on and mm-hmm. so forth. You know, mm-hmm. so all this uh, requires some kind of um, proper civic education and also uh, proper commitments from both sides, from the farmers, from the companies that are coming in, and from the farm from. Uh, from from the government itself and then other uh, partners that are coming in. People need to understand why is this happening? What would be our benefits? You know, when this time I have land in my village, I don't have any papers for that land, you know. But when I want to sell that land, I will have papers that a a chief will have to stamp, (laughs) you know. And the one, the new buyer, the new owner who have all the documents yeah. to support ownership of that land. Yeah. Well, I don't have mm-hmm. any papers supporting that I have this land yeah. as mine yeah. because that is customary That's land. So yeah. I think there is need for enough enough civic education so that we are able to protect the land and we are able to understand whatever is happening. Of course, given this patchwork of landholding possibilities and murky boundaries and understandings, the ground for corruption and speculation is fertile. We end on this point with Clement Shema. What we have seen, the people from uh, urban areas, those that look to be affluent, when they see that the government maybe, maybe is doing a project, like for instance, uh, we have a Shire uh, transformation, uh, Shire, is, um, is, is it Shire uh, Valley transformation project. When they see that there will be a project going that direction, people from town, they go and buy land from farmers, okay, at a very cheap price. Uh, with the aim that when the government is now uh, move, moving towards that, the government will compensate them quite a lot yeah. of money. So that is one of the challenges as well in terms of uh, land grabbing from those that maybe seem to be uh, not uh, doing well in terms of uh, economic status, uh, being taken advantage mm-hmm. of by you know those that seem to have uh, enough money. I'd like to thank the fine folks at Farm Radio Trust, as well as Marianne Couture, who is currently working there for lining up the interviews for me. And on, as an aside, she also hosted me while I was in the long way. That's what you always